Welcome to the Source of the Nile, the podcast that explores the role of media and science in water diplomacy along the Nile. Today we will talk to Eugenio Gagliardone from the University of Witz in Johannesburg and with Wondwosen Michago Said from the University of Lund about official discourses and popular emotions on the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam in Ethiopia. I'm your host, Emanuele Fantini, from IHE Delft, the Institute for Water Education in the Netherlands. As it was tweeted by Julian Kachinov from the US State Department, this is for all the water nerds who have been waiting for a podcast on Nile hydropolitics. Thanks, Julien, and thanks to all those who have been sending us feedback and comments. In the first episode, my colleague Yasser Mohamed, who's from Sudan, made the point of the need to focus at the sub-basin level. He made the example of the trilateral negotiations between Egypt, Sudan and Ethiopia over the construction of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, or GERD, to use its acronym. Currently built by Ethiopia close to its border with Sudan, this will be the biggest dam in Africa. And of course, you might have a very different perspective on the GERD depending if you look at it from the Ethiopian islands or from a Sudanese plain or from the Nile Delta in Egypt. So let's begin as usual to listen to some voices of the Nile. I am Aya Amen from Egypt. First time I heard about the dam, we was after revolution in Egypt. And we suddenly heard about a new dam will be built on Ethiopia. And the local, um, uh, the local newspapers and the local media all cover this uh, dam or this project as it will be prevent the, the, the water to come to Egypt. But actually when, we, uh, when I uh, being more uh, involved to the issue, I find no, it is, it is a subject of cooperation, not for conflict. Uh, my name is Zalalem Tisfai, born and raised in Addis, Ethiopia, uh, in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The, the Renaissance is an investment for all, of the, all countries, upstream, downstream, in terms of ensuring future sustainability for the river. Uh, my name is Khalid and I'm from Sudan. I believe that the dam is good for Sudan. Uh, it will have uh, many you know, stability uh, uh, impacts on the water flow in the Sudan. And um, uh, we just need to make sure that it's not going to collapse. So my name is Muhammad Hassan. I'm from Egypt. For me, it, it represents uncertainty. Uh, because we still need to know the impact and most importantly we still need to know how the two countries can work together to, to be both of them better off. My name is Frederick Mujira, I'm from Uganda, I'm a journalist. It's not so big in Uganda, not so many Ugandans know about what is happening to the River Nile in Ethiopia. They just think about uh, what is happening in Uganda. Uh, my name is Rawia Taufik and I'm uh, from Egypt. 
Well, for me as a scholar, it is actually a project that uh, unfortunately could have been, uh, you know, planned and managed in a better way to, you know, to generate and, and share benefits to all countries. Of course, it's a, it's a work in progress, so uh, one has to wait and see. Uh, my name is Solomon Goshishifara. I am from Ethiopia. It's a symbolic uh, project. It uh, unites all, all the people and it's also uh, the prospect of changing the dynamics in, in the country because it, it will help to eradicate many problems, most of all uh, poverty, and uh, it will help us in the economic transformation. So, conflict or cooperation on the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam? And will the dam unite all Ethiopians? or also Ethiopia with the downstream countries. Since last November, negotiations between Ethiopia, Sudan and Egypt about the GERD are in a stalemate. And the media are among the main indicted. They've been accused of fabricating tensions around the dam, of disseminating distorted information, which is nothing surprising at the time of so-called fake news and alternative facts. So let's start by exploring how the Ethiopian media are talking about these issues. And I'm very glad to be joined by Eugenio Gagliardone to discuss this. Eugenio is a senior lecturer in media studies at the University of Witz and is also a good friend of mine. We met in Ethiopia and we lived there for several years when we were both doing fieldwork for our PhD. Welcome, Eugenio. Thank you very much for having me. Eugenio, your latest book, published by Cambridge University Press, is called The Politics of Technology in Africa, Communication, Development and Nation Building in Ethiopia. I know that it's very difficult to synthesize almost 200 pages in a few sentences, but can you try to present us how the Ethiopian government think about media, ICT and communication? And how is it linked to state and nation building? Well, I have to say that the Ethiopian government has developed a very unique approach to communication uh, and uh, one that has been forged uh, in 20 years of guerrilla struggles in the 70s and 80s uh, against uh, the regime, the military regimes of the Turk. And uh, it's, it doesn't often happen that uh, um, a government uh, it's so profoundly influenced by an ideological conception of communication. And, uh, but if we have to understand uh, the, the, the recent uh, uh, development and moves in this area, we definitely have to go back to those years. We're formatting a lot of what characterizes the media today is uh, um, shaped by a very centralized idea of communication, a very uh, um, persistent attempt uh, uh, on the side of the government to communicate with the population. The idea is communication has to be between uh, vanguard uh, and the masses. So the, the majority of the um, uh, population in Ethiopia that is still uh, rooted in farmers and peasants uh, is seen as the main target of uh, of the government, which obviously with, uh, uh, with the Ethiopian society becoming more complex and an urban population growing uh, has also slightly changed. But these, uh, uh, these initial uh, 
um, approach and uh, uh, with uh, all the new media has definitely influenced what uh, what the media's are today. And so when it comes to uh, issues like denial uh, that are very much uh, uh, at the center of ideas of development, also communication is seen as a way to uh, rally the population again uh, around uh, a supposedly common idea of development of the future of Ethiopia, which doesn't allow a lot of dissent. Dissenting voices uh, are uh, rare in Ethiopia, not because they don't exist, but because they are like uh, uh, put at the margin. Uh, censorship. Uh, there is a very limited ability to uh, to speak uh, to speak freely. But an interesting case when it comes to denial is that also dissenting voices uh, uh, seems to have a more uh, uh, understanding approach towards uh, uh, the building of the dam and so forth. So I, I, what I have seen and others have seen uh, is uh, when it comes to, to these particular issues, to the um, building of the Renaissance Dam, it has been used as, a, as an opportunity to sort of unite what is tends to be uh, a a quite divided society, as I say, not not because uh, uh, the media are divided, but because uh, uh, the media that are outside of this of the government remit uh, are very critical. But these are not easily allowed uh, to, to 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 participate in the public debates uh, uh, debate in Ethiopia. Different stories for the diaspora, which is very vocal and very critical. I was wondering how these rather hierarchical systems works with internet, with social media, which at least in theory should be a rather open network. And I'm thinking about you, one of your latest research, which is called Mechachal, and that's an exploration of online debates before and after 2015 national elections in Ethiopia. What did you learn from that research and how did online speech get translated if they got translated also in real political action. Well, Meshachal was a fascinating project because it gave us the opportunity uh, for a number of reasons to uh, really put numbers to uh, different type of uses of social media. Uh, the government of Ethiopia, together with many other governments, have often accused uh, uh, social media to be used to spread hatred and uh, uh, destabilize the countries and so forth. And what we found out in the report that are publicly available uh, online uh, is that actually hate speech is very limited portion of uh, uh, the overall amount of communication going on in social media. So in a way, we, we, we explained, we gave the numbers to the government that was regularly invited to our meetings where we disseminated our results that actually hate speech is not a threat uh, for uh, Ethiopia going forward to the destabilization of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the country. And uh, it was fascinating because to a point we were listened to and then uh, at least some of the participants uh, in, uh, in our uh, conferences and workshops sort of uh, understood this academic effort. Unfortunately, and uh, uh, regime, the people in charge changed and some of the, those who were involved in the process were sort of put on the sidelines and uh, violence uh, is, uh, uh, is, uh, is possible, is uh, uh, used as a, as a, as a tool uh, to, to contest ongoing uh, decision uh, and policies. But if we go back to uh, a previous election, the election in 2005, it was interesting how Ethiopia, which is seen as a kind of a relatively backward country when it comes to innovation and, uh, and, uh, and the media, was uh, 
quite at the forefront of uses of social media that we found later on in the Arab Spring, for example. Uh, at the time in 2005, the penetration of the internet was very limited. Uh, Facebook was uh, uh, still uh, uh, something used by by American uh, college uh, students, uh, and Twitter was not invented, but uh, there was this blossoming of the Ethiopian blogospheres. And uh, because not a lot of people could access blogs, uh, you could see newspapers in Addis Ababa mostly, but also in other major towns, sort of reprinting what was being said in the blogs, uh, and these were being turned into leaflets and then SMS. So there was uh, a lot of what uh, media scholars call media relays, so something that comes from one media get uh, uh, transcribed and translated into another media Media for wider support, but again, this was uh, after the election. This was faced with uh, with repression. So, if we have to summarize, uh, there is there has been an attempt uh, uh, by uh, young activists, uh, uh, young minds in general, to make use and sort of force these very tightly controlled space. Uh, and even if some of these uh, claims and demands were not threatening, we're not calling for regime change, we're calling just for greater freedom of expression and greater public representation of different voices, uh, they were constantly uh, met with, uh, with repression and fears. Uh. I know that for the Mecha Child project, you also actively engage in workshops and seminars uh, with both government officials and journalists, a sort of uh, exercise in diplomacy. So can you tell us uh, what did you learn from that experience? It was a fantastic experience uh, and, uh, and it was also frustrating at the same time. It was fantastic because we, we tried to engage uh, uh, really every key actors uh, in, uh, in the media scene. So especially when it comes to authoritarian uh, uh, governments uh, as, as uh, uh, I consider, and many other consider the Ethiopian governments, uh, there is a tendency, if you're coming from the academia or from uh, a kind of a um, engaged civil society, just to choose some actors, to choose your, your peers, to choose other academics and other, some journalists and some activists. Uh, we try to go beyond that kind of format, uh, and we invite at the same table representative, uh, key representative of the government of Ethiopia, key representative of the opposition, and all these broad variety of actors. There were people who hadn't talked for like years sitting around the same table. It's uh, uh, evidence that uh, uh, we, we started actually with trying to create collectively a methodology that could uh, uh, be endorsed by all of these different actors. And I think it was incredibly uh, rewarding to see that over time, the second, the third, the fourth workshop, uh, a kind of consensus was uh, was coming in. As I said before, it was frustrating uh, because uh, these capital can be easily depleted if the people who participate in the process uh, then uh, are ousted or pushed away from the political for the political decision making, the accurate decision making process. So this was a reshuffling government, and some of the people in government that were the most involved uh, were put on the sidelines. Uh, some of the bloggers actually were arrested. Uh, because of uh, accusation of uh, trying to plot against uh, the stability of Ethiopia and so forth. I think that's a very precious and uh, meaningful experience also for our research that try to look to understand the role that not only media but also scientific communication and science more in general can play in different controversies including Nile and hydropolitics issues. 
So, Eugenio, thanks for joining the Source of the Nile. Thank you very much for having me, Emanuele. It was a lovely conversation. I think that one of the most important points made by Eugenio is that if you want to understand how media and communication work in contemporary Ethiopia, you have to look back at the experience of the armed struggle in which key members of the ruling elite were forged. But why should a water nerd interested in Nile hydropolitics engage with this history? I will try to convince you with one example. Nowadays, one of the most influential politicians in Ethiopia is Debrezion Gebre Mikael. During the armed struggle, he used to lead Voice of Tigray, the guerrilla radio station broadcasting from the liberated areas of Tigray, somewhere hidden in a cave in the mountains. Nowadays, he's the Ministry of Information and Communication Technology, and he was recently elected as chairman of the Tigray People Liberation Front, the leading party within the ruling coalition. Debrezion is also the chairman of the National Council for the Coordination of Public Participation for the construction of the GERD, a long name to indicate the office in charge of organizing the public campaign in support of the dam. So how do the idea on political communication that Debrezion and people like him developed during the armed struggle are today shaping the Ethiopian government communication on the GERD? This is not an easy question, but we're lucky because to address it, we have as a second guest, Wondwosen Michago's side. Wondwosen, or Wonder, is currently doing his PhD at the University of Lund, working on Nile issues from a very original perspective, that of emotions and the role they play in Nile hydropolitics. As introduction to the, this topic, let's listen to an interview he gave to Frederick Mujira from Africa Water Journalist last October at the Nile Basin Forum in Kigali. I'm Wendasan Michako Said. I'm originally from Ethiopia and currently I'm a PhD student uh, in the Department of Political Science in Lund. I have been working on the Nile almost for 15 years since my first degree and second degree and now and I've also worked as a researcher in Nile Basin. Emotion plays a huge role in transpounder water management, specifically in the Nile River. The idea of hydromentality, the mentality, the way we think, the way we express our emotions and perceptions and are behind all these analytical frameworks. Hi Wanda, welcome to the source of the Nile. Thank you very much. Well, uh, in fact, you are closer to the real sources of the Nile than us because you are in Ethiopia. Last week, the Ethiopian Prime Minister visited Egypt, and of course, the GERD was the main issue on the table. So, how did the Ethiopian media cover that visit, and which are the main feelings and emotions of the Ethiopian public audience in this regard? Yeah, I think the media uh, welcomed the visit of uh, Prime Minister Haile Mariam Dassalin to uh, Egypt uh, very warmly, and there are uh, uh, positive reportings uh, still now going on. Uh, the two countries uh, have a deep-rooted uh, bilateral relationships, even if 
uh, most of the time it's not uh, a positive one. Uh, there has been ups and downs, but the current one was uh, reported very positively. And uh, uh, through the newspaper, uh, I gathered that the discussions between the two countries goes beyond non-Nile cooperation, uh, such as on trade investment and people-to-people -people, uh, collaborations. So this is uh, a right step, uh, a positive step that should be encouraged. But one thing that I should point out that, uh, as it is reported on the media, the Prime Minister Haile Mariam, they, when they were uh, going to Cairo, they passed through Khartoum. So that also tells a story uh, to what extent uh, uh, Ethiopia and Sudan's relationship has been uh, have been strengthening through time. I wasn't aware of this uh, detour by Khartoum, but makes sense also from a geographical point of view. And if we look at the geography, I think while the Nile looks very central to Egypt, it seems a little bit uh, more peripheral when it comes to Ethiopia. The majority of the Ethiopian population does not live in the Nile Basin, I think does not really use its waters. So what about the role of the Nile in the popular imaginary of the country? Is it something that unites Ethiopia? I think that the, the, the Nile has always been uh, a central point in Ethiopia, in Ethiopian history, politics and economic and social issues. Nile uh, is not at all a peripheral in, in Ethiopia. It is, in fact, larger than life. Uh, you can find uh, the Nile, or as we call it in, in Ethiopia, Abai, in everyone's hearts and minds. Uh, that's why Ethiopia got the name uh, as the water tower of Horn in North Africa. It's mainly because of the Nile. Uh, Nile is also, or Nile or Abai is also considered the father of all the rivers. If you see it geographically, uh, it covers 34% of uh, the total area of the country. It has also 40% of the Ethiopian population, uh, population which is almost uh, more than 40 million. And uh, when it comes to the water contribution, it has 84 billion cubic meters of water. So among uh, 11 rivers, the Nile constitutes the majority of the water flows of the country. So this makes it the Nile a very uh, important uh, issue. Uh, so that's why I, I'm, I'm saying that the Nile has always been in the popular imagination of Ethiopia. For instance, if you see it, uh, the lyrics, the songs, and the literatures, you can find a lot of poems and songs and literatures uh, have been written on the Nile. Uh, most of uh, the literature outside of Ethiopia, uh, they try to associate uh, Nile with Egypt. Uh, for me, I think that's not that's not the, the the right narratives. But things have completely changed after the launching of the Grand Renaissance Dam. For instance, in the past, uh, a very brief uh, writings about the Nile uh, couldn't fail to mention Egypt. But nowadays, you cannot write about the Nile without mentioning the Grand Renaissance Dam. Mm -hmm. I like your remarks about the the Gerd becoming the central, the iconic image when it comes to the Nile. So I was wondering, which are the emotions that now are associated to the dam and the Nile? The Nile has always been an emotional river. Uh, for, for me, Nile has always been uh, an emotional river. Uh, there is too much nationalism, both in upstream and downstreams. Uh, there are too much attachment. Uh, 
in on on the Nile. So emotion runs deep when it comes to the Nile. So when you see the literatures and the poems and the lyrics on on on, on the Ethiopian side uh, before the launching of the Grand Renaissance Dam, the Nile used to be depicted as the black sheep of the country. Ethiopia has rich water resources but failed to utilize its own water resources. That's why Ethiopia's name used to be uh, associated with drought and famine. So in a struggle to address these chronic uh, problems, Ethiopia has to utilize its own water resources. So after the launching of the Grand Renaissance Dam, uh, which was in 2011, you see almost a U-turn of the songs and the lyrics glorifying of the Nile. The simple example that uh, I can give you is in the past, whenever there is a picture of the Nile or the Blue Nile or Abai, what you see is a Blue Nile Falls, which is based or which is located in Bahardar. But after the launching of the Grand Renaissance, and whenever we talk about the Nile or Abai, what you, what you see is the dam itself. So from, uh, from the nature to the engineering side of it, you can see that the shift from the Blue Nile fall to Guma, where the Grand Renaissance Dam is located. In the past, you used to see the Nile with the tourists coming from abroad, but now you see uh, yellow helmet engineers surrounding the the Grand Renaissance Dam at Guma in uh, Benishangu Regional State. So you can see the shifts both in the landscape and also in in the lyrics and the narratives. So you have been talking about uh, different emotions associated to the Nile and the Gerd, including glorifying the Nile, nationalism and pride. I can see indeed that the Ethiopians are very proud of the fact that they are financing the dam with their own resources. And I'm aware that there is an ongoing campaign to convince Ethiopians, both in the country and in the diaspora, to buy bonds to finance the dam. I can imagine that you need a massive communication effort to convince and mobilize people. So I was wondering, how does this effort and public campaign yes. work? Uh, you are right. Ethiopians are poor but pride people. This has become this, this is mainly because of historical reasons, not being colonized or a uh, source of slavery. So this pride in the past has never been uh, harnessed or utilized to build the country. Uh, the Grand Renaissance Dam is a multi-billion dollar project. You can hardly find any projects, multi-billion project in Africa, which is completely and wholly financed by its own people. So that makes it a source of pride as well. Uh, that's why I usually say that the Nile politics, uh, usually buttressed with pride, have been utilized to galvanize the people of Ethiopia to contribute money for the dam. Uh, you can see that uh, an everyday discourse on the Nile and narratives, uh, every media outlet, be it social media or the government-owned media or private media, they always mention about the Grand Renaissance Dam. So that made it one of a priority uh, project or agenda in, in, in the Ethiopian mass. So the continuing discourse on the Nile has contributed a lot to 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 galvanize the people to contribute money for the realization of the Grand Renaissance Town. And what kind of initiatives also to, to, um, to involve and mobilize the population to raise 
contribution did the government implement it? I think I remember something about a World Cup, a, um, a football cup, a trophy in yes. the name of the dam. Yes. Yeah. What else are they doing? There are different lotteries, for instance. You get a message on your phone to contribute for different lotteries almost. This has been going on for years. And as you also mentioned, there is there, there was a tournament on, on the Grand Renaissance Dam uh, football trophy. Uh, and also there are exhibitions, are different uh, school medias also uh, creating different kind of awarenesses. For example, when it comes to the, the pride, the Ethiopian Prime Minister Melezenawi, uh, during uh, the launching of the Grand Renaissance Dam, declared that Ethiopia will finance the Grand Renaissance Dam by itself, and nobody uh, believed him. But the realization that Ethiopia would finance the Grand Renaissance Dam uh, came to being when Ethiopia diverted the Nile River, uh, I think three or four years ago. So you're studying in Lund, yes. in Sweden? Yes. Perhaps you can also tell us something, how the government is trying to reach the Ethiopian diaspora, eh, to involve them in the... There, there are also different mechanisms uh, to, uh, to approach those Ethiopians living in, in, in diaspora. I think uh, most of the time the embassies, they prepare different kinds of uh, money collecting or fund generating mechanisms in their embassies. There's also mechanisms for Ethiopians to buy bonds from abroad. As, as you know, the Ethiopian politics, uh, there are different kinds of uh, divergence, uh, if not conflicting politics and, uh, in, because of the domestic politics. But when it comes to the Nile issue, you can see more or less the same stand on the Grand Renaissance Dam. There might be different uh, approaches how to build the dam and when to build the dam. But uh, in an overall assessment, you can see a unanimous approach both in, in, in inside Ethiopia and in the diaspora that Ethiopia has a right to utilize the Nile waters and also to build the Grand Renaissance Dam. So does it work? Did you bind yourself the bond? Yes, I think it's, it's, it worked very, very well. I think almost everybody that I know around me also bought a bond. I'm not speaking on behalf of each and every Ethiopians, but uh, usually uh, most people are willingly buying the bond, especially if you compare it to other sectors. I think the Grand Renaissance Dam as an iconic national building projects, people are more or less willingly contributing to the Grand Renaissance Dam. Thank you very much, Wanda. It's my pleasure. We have learned about the importance of history and emotions in Nile hydropolitics. Both Eugenio and Wanda pointed at how the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam unites the country. So in the next episode, we will look at how the dam is perceived in Egypt and in Sudan. The Sources of the Nile is brought to you by the project Open Water Diplomacy, Media, Science and Transboundary Cooperation in the Nile Basin. 
funded by the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our music is by the Nile Project, a collective of musicians from different Nile countries. Thanks guys, and thanks to Emily Baus for editing this episode. Stay tuned and follow us. You can find our contact at nilewaterlab.org. Thanks for listening and keep searching for the sources of the Nile.